0: When you hear the term, the last acceptable prejudice, what do you think it is? I was going to use the term as the title for this show because I thought it referred to fat bias or fat shaming. But a quick Google search brought the phrase up for weight bias, ageism, and disdain for the less educated. So it looks like we have a long way to go in learning to just accept each other as we are. What connects these and all prejudices is that they cause a lot more than just emotional trauma. They all create very real economic health and social problems. Today, we're going to read about the impact of fat bias on doctors, patients, and healthcare in general. Information from the CDC lists the prevalence of obesity in the U.S. at 42.4% of our population in 2017-2018. So the negative outcomes of fat bias is an issue that affects close to half the people in the United States. I think that is a staggering number. Our first article today comes from the North Carolina Health News, was published on February 2nd, 2021, written by Leora Engel-Smith, and she titled this, Fat Bias at the Doctor's Office Takes a Serious Toll. Alyssa McCord would rather not see a doctor at all. The upstate New York native, who now lives in Jacksonville with her husband and daughter, attributes some of her reluctance to upbringing. Her parents only went to the doctor when absolutely necessary, she said. The other part of that reluctance, says the 38-year-old, is how providers react to her weight. McCord, who wears size 20 pants, is used to providers making demeaning comments about her body. Often, they'd blame her weight for every ailment, from heavy periods to colds to numbness and tingling in her hands. In September, McCord had an experience that surprised even her. She'd gone to a family doctor to discuss consistently heavy periods and constant exhaustion. The doctor said her stomach was cramping because she is fat. If she lost weight, he told her, the pain would go away. The doctor did not order any of the customary tests, such as abdominal ultrasound or blood tests, to confirm his assertion. He looked at her and made up his mind, McCord said. McCord would later learn from another provider that an enlarged uterus caused the cramps and heavy bleeding. Blood loss from the heavy periods made her anemic, accounting for her fatigue. Nearly every person in a bigger body has their own story of weight-based bias at the doctor's office. It could be anything. A too small blood pressure cuff or medical gown, a wince from a triage nurse during a weigh-in, a negative comment from a physician, or as in McCord's case, blaming every symptom on weight. It's impossible to know exactly how pervasive weight bias is in the healthcare system, especially because it involves provider attitudes. But it's safe to say that fat discrimination is rather common, said Grace Wu, assistant professor at the UNC Chapel Hills School of Nursing. Current estimates are that 19 to 24% of obese adults experience some form of discrimination because of their weight, from bullying at home or work to fat discrimination in clinical settings. The rates of weight bias are even higher in women and people with higher body mass index scores. Wu, who studies weight discrimination, said the maltreatment can also be nonverbal from flimsy chairs that cannot accommodate larger bodies in the clinic waiting rooms to weighing them in hallways rather than in a room that offers some privacy from passers-by. No matter how the bias is delivered, the message is clear to any person in a big body. Weight isn't just a number, it's a moral failure and a cause for shame. These negative attitudes from providers have far-reaching health implications. Wu said, some fat people may avoid the doctor altogether, delaying diagnosis of conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, or mere serious conditions such as cancer. Sense of shame about body size can also lead to a host of mental illnesses, from depression to anxiety to suicidal thoughts. It's even correlated with weight gain and binge eating disorder, a condition that involves cycles of compulsive and restrictive eating. The is bad lens kind of corrupts everything, said Lindo Bacon, author, researcher, and a member of the Health at Every Size movement, a grassroots effort to eliminate weight stigma in all areas of society. And at this point, it just seems like it's basic good health care, or so it seems to the doctors, that everybody's supposed to get thinner. Weight stigma isn't just about hurt feelings. It is also linked to higher mortality rates, in part because discrimination often leads to unhealthy behaviors, such as exercise avoidance, overeating, and substance use. The stress of weight stigma is associated with metabolic changes that can make people sicker, including higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol and inflammation markers. Evidence of harm is so robust that last spring, a panel of experts from universities and healthcare systems all over the globe published a call to end weight stigma in all areas of life in the journal Nature Medicine. Weight bias and stigma can result in discrimination and undermine human rights, social rights, and the health of afflicted individuals, the authors wrote. As obesity rates in adults continue to rise, the public health consequences of fat discrimination could be significant. In North Carolina, for example, adult obesity rates more than doubled between 1990 and 2019. While the scientific community has established that weight alone is not a predictor for health, societal understanding of obesity continues to lag. Many people, including healthcare providers, believe that diet and exercise are the only ways to manage obesity, despite evidence to the contrary. Public health experts have known for years that obesity is a multifactorial condition, affected not only by behaviors, but by the social, social determinants of health, including income, access to healthy food in neighborhoods that may discourage walking, to name a few. The focus on diet and exercise alone assumes that obesity is always within a person's control, said Bacon, the health at every size advocate. From a global perspective, we know that it's the social determinants of health that play a much larger role in obesity, Bacon said. So even our messages of bringing it down to individual behavior are ignoring the really big issues in health, which is about inequity. Rochelle Hamilton was used to providers taking her seriously. Hamilton, who had always been trim, had gained 30 pounds after the birth of her youngest daughter, Violet. She thought her birth control implant may be at fault. Hamilton, who weighed 218 pounds late last year after the birth, was surprised to find that her new weight affected the quality of care she received. Before, they would mostly believe me when I said I had a problem, the Carey residents said. They believed me and listened to my symptoms and then went off of my symptoms. But at an annual physical last December, her first in a larger body, the doctor looked at her and determined that she had type 2 diabetes without a blood test or a review of diabetes symptoms, Hamilton said. The physician immediately prescribed Hamilton an $800-a-week diabetes injection and then ordered tests to confirm what she thought was the correct diagnosis. Hamilton didn't have diabetes, the blood tests later showed. Mm-hmm. The experience left her with a sense that she cannot trust medical providers. At the recommendation of a friend, Hamilton found a different doctor to go to. But the December physical cost her time, money, and aggravation. Wu, the UNC researcher, said that many overweight and obese people take the same route, moving from doctor to doctor until they find someone who would listen. But that approach can still cause damage because of delayed diagnoses. Some diseases have a golden window for treatment, Wu said. And so if you delay the treatment, you may delay the whole improvement trajectory of the disease. The economic impact of repeated appointments for the same complaint is unknown, Wu said. But with rising healthcare costs and the lack of provider availability in rural areas, patients may not have the money or ability to find a provider who would listen. If you walk into Amy Festi's clinic in Asheville, odds are the word wait won't come up unless you say it. Festi, a body-positive nurse midwife with the Asheville-based Mountain Area Health Education Center, says she first learned about the weight discrimination from her patients. People can be healthy in a larger body size, she said. I say to my own patients who are worried about their weight, I could cut off your arm and you would lose 10 pounds and you can be a whole heck of a lot less healthy. Festi says very few conditions, such as water retention during eclampsia, require in office weight measurement. Instead, Festi focuses on the patient's life as a whole, even when patients have chronic, diabetes, chronic diseases such as diabetes that would traditionally trigger a discussion about weight. She might talk to diabetic patients about their stress levels, their sleep, their ability to get medication, and access food that nourishes them. That approach may take more conversation, Festy added, but it's far kinder and respectful to patients who are already ashamed about their bodies. Wu agrees with that approach. A provider is in a position of power, she said, and their job is to build trust with patients. We don't have to push patients to talk about weight. We should just focus on whatever health issue they come in with for that day's appointment, Wu added. If the patient wants to talk about weight, then we can talk about it, but I always suggest that the patient lead that conversation. Festi said that rather than bringing up weight to patients with larger bodies, providers should educate themselves on approaching all patients, regardless of size, kindly and without judgment. The more we shine light on it, the more it's talked about, the more it's going to be an open conversation, she said. We go now to the Washington Post. This was written by Alexandra Ellerbeck, and I'm looking for a date on that. I believe it was in January, probably January 6, 2021. This is titled Obese Americans Suffer Disproportionately from the Coronavirus. The obesity epidemic has made it harder for the US to fight the coronavirus pandemic. And the pandemic has made it harder for Americans to fight obesity. Weight loss is top of mind for many people in January, when, roughly, when nearly 40% of people who make a resolution say they plan to lose weight. But this year, as the U.S. continues its struggle against the virus, the nation's record obesity rate feels particularly dire. Obese people have died of COVID-19 at disproportionate rates. For a time, hospitals suspended bariatric surgeries, one of the best ways of helping obese people keep off weight. As if the country needed yet another obstacle to getting the population immunized, researchers are concerned the vaccines might not provide obese individuals with as much protection as those who aren't overweight. There's no research on this question yet, but vaccines against the seasonal flu, hepatitis B, and rabies have prompted reduced responses in obese people compared to leaner ones. If that's true for the coronavirus vaccine, it would bode poorly for U.S. ability to mount a successful vaccination effort, considering a record 42% of Americans now meet the obesity threshold. Dr. Rajat Madden, a professor of medicine specializing in infectious diseases at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, pointed out results from the Pfizer vaccine trial found similar results in vaccine efficacy between obese and non-obese populations. But it might be possible obese people will see their immunity wane faster or will need an extra booster shot. Obese individuals have a dysregulated immune response. In that sense, one would think that COVID-19 vaccines may have less efficacy, Madden said. The stakes are higher than normal for obese Americans who are more likely to become severely ill with COVID-19 or die of it. Researchers have found having obesity already increases one's likelihood of hospitalization for COVID-19 by 113 percent and chances of dying of the illness by 48 percent. Hospitals all over the country have suspended bariatric surgeries along with other elective procedures during the pandemic, both to save ICU space and to protect post-operative patients from infection. Yet bariatric surgery may be one of the most potent weapons for fighting obesity. Studies show it's really, really hard to lose weight and keep it off. One study from UK researchers found an obese woman has 1 in 124 odds of returning to a normal weight, while for an obese man, the odds are 1 in 210 over a nine-year period. There's one major exception. Some 70% of patients receiving one method of bariatric surgery maintained at least a 20% weight loss 10 years later. Such surgery has been found to reduce cardiovascular risk factors and even result in remission of type 2 diabetes. Evidence for its efficacy keeps piling up. A study published last year in the Annals of Internal Medicine found bariatric surgery was effective in helping patients lower blood pressure and control hypertension after three years. About 93 million Americans are classified as obese, meaning they have a body mass index over 30. Of those, the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery estimates roughly 24 million have severe obesity, defined as a BMI over 40 or over 35 with another health problem, such as diabetes, sleep apnea, or high blood pressure, which could potentially qualify them for weight loss surgery. Fewer than 1% of people who meet the criteria for bariatric surgery get the procedure. While bariatric surgery has become increasingly less invasive in recent years and is considered fairly safe, it isn't without discomfort and risks. Changes to the gastrointestinal tract seem to make it harder to absorb micronutrients, for instance, leaving some patients susceptible to serious complications without daily vitamin supplements. But Deepak Bhatt, the Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs at Brigham and Women's Health, who has spent years researching outcomes in bariatric surgery, said there's another reason so few patients get the procedure, stigma from both doctors and patients. There are two issues in terms of widespread physician and maybe even patient perception, Bhatt said. One is that bariatric surgery is for cosmetic reasons, and the second is the perception that obesity is a problem with willpower, and if only people had better willpower, it would go away. One survey of U.S. adults found about 40% believed weight loss surgery was the easy way out. Part of the reason it's so hard to maintain weight loss is because the body fights back. Losing weight triggers a slowdown in people's metabolism at the same time hormones ramp up hunger signals. This means someone who has lost weight probably will need to eat less, even as they feel hungrier, to maintain the same weight as someone else who never had the extra pounds to start with. Over the past decade, insurance coverage for bariatric surgery has improved dramatically, but it hasn't always been accompanied by a major uptake in the surgery. As professional guidelines have been updated to reflect the efficacy of bariatric surgery, more insurance companies have expanded coverage. As of 2018, Medicare, 49 state Medicaid programs, and most commercial insurers offered coverage for at least one bariatric procedure. But expanding insurance coverage alone does not necessarily mean that patients get greater access, said Hamlet Gassian, a researcher at Temple University. The devil is in the details. Many plans require that a patient first go through half a year of pre-operative counseling, which can be costly. Meanwhile, patients are often on the hook to pay thousands of dollars, with no guarantee the plan will foot any necessary follow-up procedures. Gassien argues changing insurance coverage is feasible and provides medical benefits over the long run, and cites the case of MGM Resorts International. The hospitality company, which runs its own benefits program, found good clinical outcomes after offering an incentive for its employees who underwent weight loss surgery $5,000 in reimbursed copays after two years, and another $5,000 to cover procedures such as excess skin removal after four years. And we have time for hopefully much of this article from the Washington Post written by Carrie Dennett and published on March 3, 2021. This is titled, A Study Claimed to End the Fat-But-Fit Debate, but it had its own problems. Can you be both fat and fit? That question has been the core of a lengthy scientific debate that basically boils down to this. Are cardiovascular problems associated with high weight attributable to the weight itself, or can they be mitigated by fitness? Many on the no side probably felt vindicated by the results of a widely publicized study of 527,662 Spanish adults released in January. The study examined associations among body mass index, physical activity, and cardiovascular disease factors, and it concluded that the government needed to make weight loss as well as physical activity, a primary target of health policies. But although this study stirred the pot and grabbed some headlines, such as, fat but fit is a myth, when it comes to heart health, new study shows, it had some major shortcomings. The design of the study can't establish cause and effect, let alone present a well-rounded picture of health risks. Perhaps worse, it goes on to propose unrealistic public policies. To conduct the study, researchers drew data from insured active workers across Spain, including their BMI, self-reported leisure time physical activity levels, and information from medical examinations on the presence of type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure. They concluded that being active was associated with lower risk of having those health issues within each BMI category, normal weight, overweight, and obese but that individuals in the higher weight groups had more cardiovascular risk factors than their normal weight peers, regardless of activity level. The study was published in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology as a research letter, which means it lacks the details found in full research reports and was subject to less scrutiny. Although the study included an impressive number of participants, it's notable that the authors did not look at eating habits and that the activity levels were self-reported. But the cross-sectional design of the study, looking at data from a specific population at one point in time, brings up other issues. Specifically, from a cross-sectional study, you cannot know what came first. Did the health issue lead the individual to engage in more activity, Or did the lack of activity lead to disease? Said Jennifer Cook, an associate professor and researcher at York University in Toronto who specializes in how obesity, diet, and physical activity relate to health. Cook said it's also unclear whether factors such as income or socioeconomic status, ethnicity, or a family history of chronic disease are affecting the results. A more accurate headline would have been Another study confirms that cardiovascular disease risk factors are related to each other, said Fiona Willer, a Queensland, Australia-based dietitian and researcher and host of the podcast Unpacking Weight Science. This study offers nothing really new or interesting. High blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, diabetes, higher BMI, and a sedentary lifestyle are all well-established as cardiovascular disease risk factors and some of them share common metabolic origins, particularly diabetes and higher body weight. Wheeler said research has already established that being physically active does not fully counteract those risk factors. If that were the case, the only risk factor we'd care about would be physical activity level, she said, adding that ironically, the new study did show that being physically active may lessen those risk factors regardless of body size. She said that without information about who actually developed cardiovascular disease or experienced adverse health events over time, it is impossible to know how weight and activity level might influence the things we really care about, such as actual heart attacks. She also points out that an individual's physical fitness levels can fluctuate over a lifetime, but this study does not capture that information. Alejandro Lucia, a professor at the European University of Madrid and one of the study's authors, acknowledged the study's limitations, but said it still contributes valuable evidence. In a world full of inactivity and obesity, with the figures even more worrying in the younger population segments, most adults don't seem to follow that advice of being active and thin, and policies in these matters have not been too successful in general, he said via email. He said the study's findings that active obese participants were more likely to have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and diabetes support fighting or preventing excess body weight, which to the best of my knowledge, can only be achieved by losing body weight, per se. However, although engaging in physical activity is a behavior, weight change is not. It's something that may or may not happen as a result of our behaviors, our genetics, and other factors. Other researchers question how promoting weight loss as a health policy is realistic, given that despite decades of trying, no one has come up with a way to help people maintain weight loss for the long term. Willer said statements recommending weight loss are common in the conclusional sections of these kinds of fat-slash-fit papers, even when the study didn't investigate intentional weight loss, something that as a researcher she finds disappointing. The fact that it appears in this paper, and that this very brief paper was deemed headline-worthy, demonstrates the huge problem we have, not with weight itself, but with weight bias in scientific research and journalism. She said that if the authors had used all of the data at their disposal, including information from routine medical exams, which would have included weight-related goals, it's likely they would have found what other long-term studies have concluded that lasting weight loss is unlikely beyond two to five years for most people who lose weight voluntarily. Public health policies have a moral and civic obligation to be feasible, achievable, and effective for the target population, Willer said. Weight loss targets have been at the center of public health chronic disease prevention campaigns for years. We have diligently observed the outcomes of these efforts for decades. We now know them to be unsuccessful at a population level, and for some, they've led to the experience of weight stigma, discrimination, disordered eating, and eating disorders. She said the intention of these policies, improved health, was good, but it's time to recognize that they don't work. And there you have a weighty issue. Thank you for tuning in to Sound Body today. Stay well, and please come back next week for more healthy living ideas.